Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing chapters 12 and 13 of The Subtle Knife, the second book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. Chapter 12, Screen Language. Mary and her colleague Oliver Payne discuss Lyra's intimate knowledge with their of their computer system, the cave. Suddenly, Sir Charles shows up. He makes the two an offer they can't refuse, offering to support their grant application with the veiled threat of disrupting if they refuse. After a heated discussion, he leaves, and Mary and Oliver discuss the terms that Charles was outlining. Oliver states that if Mary does not take Charles up on it, he will. And so Mary resigns and Oliver calls Charles. Later, Mary returns and after bluffing her way past a security guard, she gets to her lab and asks a few questions of the cave using a new interface she developed. Apparently, Dust is actually a bunch of sarcastic angels with a set of instructions for her to follow. She needs to play the serpent. She sabotages the cave and leaves to Sunderland Avenue, finding that the window to Chitagatsi is enclosed by a forensic tent. She bluffs her way past the police guard with a fake ID and steps through the window. Chapter 13. Isita. The witches perform a spell to try and stem Will's bleeding, and everyone sleeps through the night. The next morning, the witches tell Will and Lyra that they are here to guide and help Lyra on her quest, which is now Will's quest to find his father. As they continue onwards, following the directions of the alethiometer, Pan reminds us that he exists. As he and Lyra <laughs> discuss whether they should talk to the alethiometer regarding Will and their current quest, which is Will's quest. Lyra and Pan catch up <laughs> with Will to talk to him about the kids in Sagatsa, and Will tells Lyra about his mother and her similarities to Tulio, and his quest which is her quest. <laughs> the next night, Will's fingers don't seem to be healing, despite the spell. Will has a conversation with Pan whilst Lyra pretends to be asleep where he admits that he is scared and tells Pan that Lyra is his best friend. Pan says the same back. The next day, they find out Lee may be on his way. Ta-da! Suddenly, Rutuscardi <laughs> arrives being chased by some cliff ghasts, which are quickly dispatched by Will and the witches. Ruta tells the witches about Azriel's new fortress and all the denizens of a multitude of other worlds who have gathered there. She also tells of a wise old cliffgast who mentions that Azriel will fail in his campaign against the authority without the help of unpronounceable words, such as Isita. <laughs> they debate who this Isita may be, and then after a brief interruption by some voyeuristic angels who put everyone to sleep temporarily so they can catch Will and Lyra, Ruta heads back to her world to try and unite the witch clans against the authority. 
if that sounded like a slightly boring summary of a very strange chapter, it's because it was. It <laughs> was slow. Tell so us those how are my really general feel. feelings. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think when you read this chapter, you're not uh, full with a brimming, powerful hatred of, for Frutiscati. <laughs> so that's why it seems so slow. For me, it's just like, fuck this bitch, fuck this bitch. <laughs> and yet you're, you're <laughs> under your general feelings, it says that these were your favorite chapters in the book. Uh, I, I guess I mostly meant 12. Okay, yeah. One of yeah, these 12 was really chapter. good. <laughs> the fact that you forgot yeah, I, the other chapter says everything about that chapter. <laughs> well, there are some parts in that chapter that I do like. They could be condensed a into a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get into it, though. How did we all feel about these two chapters? Uh, Francis has obviously already gone. <laughs> Alan? Mm, well... I mean, I pretty much agree about the, you know, it's like it's all set up, right, for Lyra and Will here in in that chapter for, you know, for 13. But I do think the way that it's constructed with 12, how Mary's story kind of reaches a climax and she goes through the portal, you're like, oh, and you've got a lot of energy going into that chapter, which I think propels you forward and you, you know, but then by the end of that chapter, I'm like ready for that chapter to be over. So I do think it's good going in and, and it just like drags. I do kind of feel like we're setting up for everybody's uh, Empire Strikes Back ending. Yeah. You know, where like nothing's actually ended mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we're in the middle. Yeah, I think the chapter with Mary is so good and it feels like the last real chapter of this book. Because um, chapter 13 and then the final two that we'll be talking about in the next episode, they're really just kind of like moving the puzzle pieces or sorry, not puzzle pieces. What's the correct metaphor? Chess pieces, moving the, the yes. like, chess pieces around on the board so that book three can start where he wants it to. And like there is some drama that we'll probably complain about next time. But for the most part, like. Like, we're done with the meat of the book, and what's left is kind of a mildly disappointing denouement. No, I don't, I don't hate the, the chapter 13 that much. I guess I always feel like I can... Personal opinion, I totally get what you're all saying, because nothing happens in that chapter. So I get it. Um, but I do like some of the character moments in it, and I like the sort of underlying tension of Will slowly bleeding to death. I think that kind of... Mm. Mm -hmm. They have that throughout and how the spell doesn't work. And I think that that helps it out. Yeah, I completely agree. That is the one thing that that makes the chapter work, even to whatever extent it does. It's that tension about Will's health and the spell. But there's another book. And it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's so obvious. To, it feels like, no, it feels yeah. like if you're playing, okay, if you're playing a, a video game and every single second you take damage in a room it's a really shoddy way to make you feel a bit of tension like yeah if i stay here too long i die but okay great like you could have like this it's it's just not a great i don't feel it's a great way to add tension to a scene sorry i, I really it, i didn't realize how much i came to dislike that chapter until i wrote up the summary 
<laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's a chapter of setup. I don't think there's a lot of conflict in it. Even, you know, it's like people bringing back reports and it's like we're mm. slowly moving towards this thing. And, oh, look, someone's coming. It's like, yeah, it's just a lot of it's kind of, you know, like, Caitlin, I appreciate you saying Empire Strikes Back. So I didn't have to. But this is like <laughs> this is like Luke, you know, driving his X-Wing through the Cloud City on his way to get into, you know, like, okay, I guess we're moving. But like if there was a whole chapter of that, it's like, wow, you couldn't know this could have just been part of something else. It's especially frustrating because the start of book three is also very slow. Mm-hmm. So for, for somebody who vividly remembers how much they dislike the start of book three, like it all just could have been smooshed. <laughs> Um, but do we want to talk about what we actually liked about this section? Uh, I'll go first because I seem to be the only person in a good place here. <laughs> um, I really loved Mary's conversation with the entity on the screen. Uh, well, for a couple of reasons, that is actually the very first thing I ever read in these books because uh, a friend of mine was reading them and she gave me that part to read to like intrigue me to read the books. So I just have like good memories of it. And also, I just think it's well done widening the mystery, I suppose. And then I also love when Rudis Gaddy is all, we must go to Azrael. And Seraphine is like, fuck no, bitch. <laughs> we got our own shit to do. That's really good. And Rudis is just like, oh, well. And then I also just like when Seraphina and, and Ruda are talking about Will and they say that they he kind of frightens them. Or, or they unsettles them. And I just think that that's one of the, the good character moments that do come through in Chapter 13. That and, and a couple others. Mary. Mary is the interesting thing. Although I do agree on the, uh, on the Serafina saying no to Rutascardi. Just, that's satisfying. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. it's just, yes, please. Thank you. Thank you for saying what we all thought. <laughs> no, piss off, go do your own thing. I love Mary as a character not just because she's a pretty decently written academic character and that's my job, but also just that she behaves in a way where you look at her and go, yeah, that's a reasonable response. It, maybe it wouldn't seem the, seem the same from the outside, but you're, you're told how she's thinking and you go, and you go, yeah, yeah, Mary makes sense. And the, I mean, that will continue as we go on. I just, I, I love Mary. She's great. She's kind of like the opposite of Ruta Scatty. Because, <laughs> like, it's like if Phil Pullman wrote this one woman who is, isn't, isn't a human being, like, just a, or isn't, obviously, she's a witch, but you know what I'm saying. She, she isn't a person. Yeah. But then he wrote this other woman who, who is like a, a woman I could know, who works, who I get. And I'm like, how did you write these two different, th- how do you not, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, I think. Mary's definitely the best part of this section. And I remember on my uh, most recent read through of this book, getting to this chapter and being like, oh, okay. So like, she's going to be an ongoing character. It makes sense that we were getting her point of view a bit before. I like, didn't even notice that that should have been the clue that she was going to play an important role and, and come back and actually like be a, like a meaningful part of this plot um, beyond just talking to Lyra at Oxford. Um, But this is, this chapter makes me really appreciate her and, and kind of makes me excited for book three um, in a big way. 
Mary's pretty awesome. That's not what I picked, though. Well, thank God, because somebody <laughs> had to say something different. Um, I I really like the moment between Will and Pan where, you know, like Will doesn't understand these taboos that are in Lyra's society about speaking directly to the demon, but also like there is no way for his demon to communicate with her demon, you know, other than him talking to Pan. So like it's a weird situation, but it feels very intimate, right? Like, cause they're looking at each other, but Lyra's looking the other way and poor Will, like he's so sweet and like strong, but doesn't appreciate himself. And, you know, he confesses to Pan that like Lyra is the only real friend he's ever had and the best friend he's ever had and someone who takes care of him and that he needs to be brave for her and, all of that is very sweet. And then we get like the flip side for a moment and we go into Lyra's POV and she's wide awake and shaking. And like all of that is just so vulnerable and intimate and beautiful. Like, I love it. I love that scene a lot too. I mean, even that kind of feels like set up for, for other things, but is also like a payoff to their journey together so far in a way that is, it's like a very soft climax. I also like that Pan says it back when he says, you know, Lyra thinks the same about you, which is interesting mm-hmm. because we've seen Lyra have so many friendships. Right. Yeah. Like she's kind of the opposite of Will mm-hmm. in her friends, but I'd like Pan isn't lying, I wouldn't think. So it, it's an interesting point of view for Lyra to be like actually maybe those weren't real friendships, you know, maybe we were just playing. Maybe we didn't know each other the way that Will and I know each other. Well, he didn't say because Roger's dead, you are her favorite, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he didn't, he didn't add that in there. I was going to ask is who are you talking about Lyra being friends with besides Roger? I mean, because well, she all seems the kids like- that she used to know because she she used to be friends with like Billy Costa and like okay. all the kids she used to play with in Oxford, who presumably she spent more time with than we saw on page. That's fair. And I guess there's kind of like different ways of thinking about friendship. Like she definitely had a lot of casual, friendly acquaintances. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, this is kind of a friendship on a different level. Yeah, I would even say with that maybe things would have would be different if Roger had lived. But I would even say at this point, she and Will know each other better than she knew Roger, even though she knew Roger so much longer. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just because of the circumstances that they've been in and because of the things that Lyra's had to learn about herself. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And he's been there for her in like the biggest crisis of her life in a way that yeah. is important to her. And she hasn't quite failed him as badly as she failed Roger. Yeah, I think that's important. <laughs> wow. Way to up her self-confidence there. <laughs> no, but that's what I'm saying. Like, that's got a way on her mind so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a th- another thing Pan didn't say is, you know, uh, given that you're alive, you're definitely our best friend. Yeah. Given that we haven't killed you yet. 
Oh my God. I have so much to say about book three in this conversation. So we need to move on. (laughs) Uh, Is it worth talking about our least favorite part or did we already do that enough? Uh, No, because mine's different. Okay. But I'm going to start because I just want to yes, go ahead get it get it all <laughs> like, off your chest get, out, get it way. out there <laughs> it's been it's been a long old week I really need this um <laughs> again I hate to hark on about chapter th- I don't hate to hark on about chapter 13 I fully mean this it doesn't feel like it's the same book it feels like you're reading from it's almost like what's that part in the bible where there's about 46 people who begat each other it's just called the begats, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of like reading that, where you're like, this is, it's like, and Lyra said to Will this, and Lyra said to Pan, maybe we should talk to Will about this, and Pan said, no, wait, yes. And you're just like, oh my God, I don't fucking care. The, the, whole, the whole thing... <laughs> gets us to a place and i've written down in the notes this is the whole reason that rpg games have fast travel systems is because sometimes the journey isn't what you're actually there for if you're going to disneyland (laughs) at the age of six yeah you could you know it might be a nice drive but you're not in the car for the fucking drive you're there to get there and then the interesting things happen when you get to fucking disneyland (laughs) <laughs> it's just it's it's a vehicle for what are some interesting plot points but which could have been put in a much more interesting manner and instead we've just sort of he might as well have written us a, a lyra's journal entry from that day which just said this happened this happened this happened and it would have been almost more satisfying so yes i have feels about this <laughs> no i agree the part that annoyed me the most in particular was when Will was recounting events that we saw the first time in the book. Yeah. Uh, and there was like basically no added value to that. And I think that took up almost two full pages. And so I yeah, I think some of the stuff there, it does give some insights to character. We are getting slightly new information um, but for the most part, it's all stuff that the reader knows. And generally, Philip Pullman is is pretty good at skipping over that. Like, oh, yeah. I should have written it down. But there was one other line um, later in the book when it was like, I think it was Serafina talking to Ruta. And it was like, and Serafina told her everything that she knew about this. Yeah. And it was like, great. Right. You just like did a whole conversation in one sentence that should have been utilized more in this chapter. That's a technique of writing called abstraction. And you like get people who say, Oh, you have to show and not tell. But sometimes if you just tell like, then it's over. Like the point of doing that is to like keep the pace moving. Right. You don't need to show everything. Yes. Have you ever wondered? And then he sighed heavily. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's, it's the classic thing you'll see in, um, you know, early writers uh, and amateur writers and kind of fan fiction and things like that, the things that they get wrong are often where they over-describe. They write too much. And you're like, I didn't need to know that he then went to the loo. I sort of assume that normal (laughs) bodily functions are taken care of most of the time. I don't need to know that they spent 20 minutes cooking bacon, burned it, spent another 20 minutes cooking bacon, unless that's useful. If it then turns out that 
there's you know is actually has some condition such that he forgot that he was cooking bacon and so burnt it that's interesting that can come in as a plot point but it's if, if it's just that he's bad at cooking that doesn't help me and i and again it's kind of like Chekhov's gun you expect something to happen from that if someone mentions how bad they are at cooking you expect that to come back later and but but none of this is, is any of that it's just that they've walked for a bit these towns i mean i'm pretty positive they never come up again so like why tell us they had to bargain twice <laughs> yeah that that bit was pretty bad maybe he was trying to properly convey the tediousness that will and lyra felt as they were walking yeah, you can just abstract that again. Yeah. Like, it was a boring journey. He very, he very, <laughs> yeah. very effectively communicated that. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's what he was going for, but that's like not a good choice regardless. That's you. Please do not give us that same tedious feeling. We do not need it. My thought is that he wrote this from two sides. I think he wrote the bit afterwards and the bit before. And then he was like, shit, I need to get from here to there. And then yeah, that sort of ended up being the split of the book. That's the that's the most reasonable thing I can think because it's so it's really out of character for how Pullman writes. It doesn't read it doesn't read like something written by the author of the rest of this book. Anyway, on to other least favorite parts. <laughs> my my thing is like related because it's like in the same section and it's the same kind of thing. Like even though we get this supernatural event of all of the angels making a pilgrimage to them. And they like surround the children and and you get like a lampshading of how important these two characters are. But like we know that, (laughs) you know, like everything has already told us how central they are. And that is kind of an opportunity to help us to get to know the angels a little bit better and to give them some character, except that there is no characterization there other than they have some kind of culture that like knows about what's going on and has like an interest in physically being around the children for some reason. But like, you know, we're not getting like an angel POV character who contextualizes all of that and makes it personal and interesting and grounded. It's like this weird scene that doesn't do anything and if you lift it out of even this section that is not doing a whole lot of dramatic work nothing changes and so like even though this is like a supernatural event and is very different than like mundane money bargaining I feel like even this is not necessary and I found it very annoying. It was like the cherry on top and I was like, fuck your cherry. Like, what are we doing? Like, why? (laughs) This is unnecessary. Like, just get to it. I just didn't feel this way. I don't know. It was a good scene, I thought. It was well written. It was interesting. That's fair. It said that the, it, it pointed out that these angels had a knowledge of Will and Lyra that we don't know about yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get some information about the angels. I wish that was like more contextualized, like I said, like in a grounded, you know, perspective of some kind. But, you know, like that whole thing could have been we could have zoomed in and spent more time on that whole thing and like 
set up a character and all of this kind of stuff and like gotten rid of some other elements of this chapter and would have been way more interesting because we would be getting new information about the world building and all of this stuff. And so it's like either take this out or expand it, you know, like do something with it. It doesn't do much. It doesn't do enough. I don't know. I just don't feel that way. It's it was okay. fine. <laughs> ringing endorsement on the back of the book yeah i guess it didn't feel it didn't feel useless to me it actually caught my attention in a way that few other things in this chapter did catch my attention but i also found the angels like kind of creepy in a way i mean i added in that that bit of the summary about them being voyeuristic it uh I don't know. Alan, you just used the word beautiful to describe it, or at least its potential. And I, I found it like very unsettling, actually. Um, oh, yeah. And, and so in a way, I think it, it did kind of work for me in like building tension in a way um, just because it was so it felt so creepy to me. Yeah, I do not like or trust the angels at this point, not knowing anything about book three. So I think that this will definitely be in the show, right? Because it's just too good of an opportunity to do something visually beautiful and interesting. Mm. Uh, but I don't know that it like narratively pays for itself. I guess for me, like when I got to this, I also noticed it and we were getting new information. And that was kind of the moment that I trigged to the whole thing. It was like it was kind of like a con man going one step too far. And then you look back over the conversation and you're like, wait a minute, like, fuck you. Like this whole <laughs> chapter has been this, like, this is the concentrated version of this. So that's what I didn't like about it. I do not feel that passionately about it. I really like this scene. It was okay. <laughs> fuck this shit. It was okay. <laughs> He's a really good writer. I mean, even the stuff that I would take out is like, you know, it's better than a lot of other stuff you might read. Uh, all that being said, my least favorite part is when Rudiscati is talking about Lord Asriel. Just everything about that is bullshit. She has this weird, like, awe and adoration in her voice of Asriel. And, like, I've never heard a woman talk about a man that way <laughs> ever in my life, especially not when other men are around. There are men I respect, I guess. But I would never feel that way about a man with that weird adoration. Like, she was worshipping him. You don't feel don't like any, any man controls time? You've never felt that way about? No. <laughs> and, like, she's a super old, powerful witch. Like, what? Like, maybe that's what Pullman is trying to say. But that scene is just stupid to me. Nobody would talk like that. If anything, it would be more like... We need to figure this dude out because what the fuck? Where 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 does he get this power from? That's what would be interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. It's just more of Ruta not being a person, like you said. Um yeah. and, and Pullman trying to build an entire female character around the man she's obsessed with and use that as a way to also build up that male character in a way that I find really aggravating. So preach. The, the weird thing about this is, and I'm going to get into some spoilers here because 
I just want you all to know how stupid this is. Azrael doesn't fucking matter to the plot. Right. Like the <laughs> the third book is going to end and Azrael's going to be like, "Oh, everything I did didn't matter at all." Like that's <laughs> literally what he the the realization that he's going to come to. Other well, in a way, but spoilers. So like <laughs> but like so why? Why does he feel this need? Like I I love I love that there's this big powerful dude in this story who's doing these holy shit we're building an army and we're going to have a huge war and that's not the focus of the story. I love that. I think that's great. Um you know because it would be so easy to tell that story. People have told that story. Mm-hmm. And so I I really love that that's happening in the background. And Lyra and Will are just like, okay, well, we don't care. We've got our own shit. <laughs> and that's what's interesting. And now, well, and other things that happen in book three that are interesting that have nothing to do with that. Um, so I, I think it's great that we get that information. But everything about Rudiscati in this chapter is terrible. Like, why did she bring us the story about Issa? <laughs> you know, why didn't why didn't Will and Lyra get attacked by Cliff Gas and overhear that or something? Mm-hmm. Why is she why does she fucking exist? I hate her. And I would like her to not be in the TV show, please. See, I have <laughs> she's a, terrible. I have a theory. I, my theory is that, in fact, Ruta Scardi is a self-insert character by Philip Pullman. And there is someone <laughs> out there in the world who is his Asriel. Ah. <laughs> I think it holds water is the only bloody explanation I've got. <laughs> you don't think Azriel is the the wannabe insert character and Ruta Scotty is the no, person no, 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 Pullman no. wishes? Philip Pullman, Philip, Philip Pullman definitely wishes he was a sexy, powerful witch. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I, I, I would also very much appreciate being a sexy, powerful witch. I'm not. Yeah. But if someone said, do you want to be a sexy, powerful witch? I'd definitely not say no. Yeah, same, same. <laughs> so as long as we're not all the same witch, because <laughs> that might get. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Do you all want to be the same weird. witch? Um, again, I don't know, mate. Can I think about that? You have to love Lord Asriel. God no, know, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> not just love though. She is fucking obsessed with this dude, and. I don't get it. Anyways, we should definitely talk about what we learn about Azrael, but this is just me dunking on Scatty, who's a the fucking worst. Can we just have a, a like a bonus episode where we just <laughs> dunk on Scatty for like forty five minutes? <laughs> it gets its own theme song. No, no, it's it's us. It would be an hour and a half. It's us. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Question about the cliff ghasts. Is this the first time that? we find out that they're like sentient beings who are capable yes. of like talking. Cause that felt kind of weird too. I mean, I guess polar bears are non-human persons. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it, I, it felt surprising and a little bit weird that the cliff gas were like capable of speech. I don't, I thought we did see something earlier, but maybe I'm just, cause I've read these books so much. Maybe I just assumed, like I already have it in my brain, mm, yeah. you know, so it doesn't feel out of nowhere to me. I definitely think I, I don't think we have seen it before. I think we only ever saw them attacking the we we hear them mentioned. We saw them attacking the boat, the sky balloon? boat balloon. That one, thank you, balloon. 
I, I, I think that actually this is the most redeeming part of the chapter is that is that that surprisingly big revelation that they are actually sapient they they have history they have a culture they're a, they're in and of themselves a completely different species not just running on animalistic principles like they're they're evil they're demonstrably evil but they're not without merit they again they've got culture they've got history they've got everything like that and it makes them such a different sort of thing then they're no longer just this force of nature they're in fact a you know they're actively malicious rather than just of their nature being kind of dickish that's cool (laughs) yeah it is it isn't well there is the possibility that the cliff guests in lyra's world aren't like this right they're like our polar bears are to the panzerborn yeah but just but by by the way Rudisketti reacted, I don't think that that's accurate, mm-hmm. but it could be. Because she wasn't, like, surprised or anything. No, no, yeah, that's very true. Although it's possible that only the witches know that. Or only the witches have, communi- have discovered how to communicate with them, like, that regular humans have not. Right. You- I wonder how they're going to do that in the show. How, like, uh, I guess they could just cut it out. Yeah, it could just be someone reporting the information and we don't like No, they could they could cut out any Isahitra stuff. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Just just so that you hate this chapter even more. Isahitra <laughs> shit. It doesn't matter. Well, I mean, you know, like you talk about spoilers about uh, you know, Asriel and stuff like that, but that is actually what this chapter's main bit of information is, right? That like this particular thing is extremely necessary and that he doesn't have it to accomplish his mission. And so like, ha ha ha, you know, like fate, this is like the classic story about fate, right? Where you like have a plan and you're going to go do a thing, but what you don't know is that you were fucked before you started. And so like that is Asriel's story going forward. And so it's not even really a spoiler, you know, to say that he in the long run just doesn't matter. And it also like you kind of crystallized something for me when when you were talking about Ruta there that like what is so off about her is that I feel like she is in that other book, that more common book that you described of like that is about Lord Asriel and raising the army mm-hmm. and going to fight, you know, the dark one or whatever that. And, you know, and Serafina's like, no, the important person is Lyra. We know that. We know the prophecy. Like, stay on task. And she's like, but my cool boyfriend. And it's like, yo, <laughs> what what book are you in? <laughs> See, the best part about this is I'm like 90% sure Brutus Caddy is not in the third book. Like, I think this is the last time we see her. <laughs> so even Pullman realized she was just nothing. <laughs> Maybe there are some uh, lantern slides of uh, Fruta and Asriel <laughs> yeah, just yeah, yeah. hanging out together while all the other events of book three are happening. But like Asriel's story in book three concerns her not at all. And I like it. <laughs> <laughs> they just have like a, a little cutaway to, as you said, slides of their holiday. They're sitting in a tiki bar on the beach drinking kind of mojitos. Yeah. <laughs> There's a go skiing, and then it's like, okay, now back to the story. Actually, that's a thing. That is a thing. Tiki and bars? Okay. No, 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 no. 
This brings us into a uh, the problematic section. Um, okay. And it's the only problematic I saw, and I, it's, it's not that I didn't get it. I just possibly wanted to garner opinions on precisely what it meant. They, they say that, uh, Ruta visits Asriel, and then mm-hmm. the witches all know what happened, and Lyra and Will don't care to ask. Are they suggesting that <laughs> she she went in and just was kind of like paint me like one of your Nordic yes. girls. Yes, like, she she said, "Hey, they banged." Yeah, and then they talked about the war. Like, how is that fucking relevant to anything? Because <laughs> Pullman okay. is obsessed with it. Asriel Asriel so, got a booty call across two fucking worlds. Great. <laughs> it's just useless. <laughs> so, a I one hundred percent agree because. Fuck everything to do with Rudiscati in this goddamn book. She could be cut out, nothing would change. I, I don't think he pulls it off at all, but I do think Philip Pullman was trying to illustrate once again his sort of differences between childs and adults there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I think that's what that sentence was supposed to be doing. But A, it just, it's it's weird and awkward. And B, I don't know any 12, 11-year-old who doesn't know what sex is. And who doesn't, who wouldn't have found it like live would be like, you, you, you were with my dad when he was sleeping. What? Like, yeah, like he, 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 I get what he's doing in the story, but at this point in time, he has written Lyra and Will. So not 12 year olds that it's weird. Yeah. yeah. It's a sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge moment. Yeah. And I, I get that that's kind of the point that they're supposed to be children and that their like whole i don't want to say sexual awakening but whatever that i can't think of any other way to describe it is kind of part of the story but you've gone too far the other way i just think yeah. like yeah I, I agree i just think they could have said it like I, I think it could have been written like yeah you know she went there and then in the morning x y and z and then the implication is that yeah. you either know what they mean or you don't it doesn't need to be pointed out that the that the kids don't know what this means whilst everyone else does it's clumsy i i agree again i think he was trying to point out that they don't know like like i think that's what he was trying to do but i think it would have been much better written if he treated the readers the same way he was treating lyra and will and we could just infer that the adults got it and the kids didn't. And like like you were saying, I 100% agree. Or well, the, the other way around would have been, would have been to say uh, she went there and they did the fuck and then Lyra and Will look confused at this term. Like, that would have done the same job. <laughs> they go, what? And it's like, never mind. We'll tell you when you're older. Any other problematics other than this weird sexual insert? Okay, I guess you not. have to leave that full silence, <laughs> just so everyone knows how awkward it was. It would require some. It would require some substance in order to have any sort of problematics. Yeah, uh, that's fair. Yeah, I can see my one thing. I'm going to talk talk about a f- potential future problematic. If the TV show does not cast Mary Malone as a Chinese woman, I'm going to be motherfucking pissed. Yes, that's fair. Yes, absolutely. 
At the very least, half Chinese. But mostly I want her to be Gemma Chan. <laughs> we discussed this in a previous episode, didn't we? I, I just, I love Gemma Chan, okay? She can be in everything. I would like to see her speak with Ruth Wilson. That would be great. They're together. Wonderful. Uh, Dustwatch, we actually have things to talk about this week. Yay! Yeah, I thought this was, like, the biggest dust moment that we've gotten so far. It, like, actually became a speaking character, which I think means it gets representation in the Actors Guild or whatever. Um, (laughs) And it's apparently really sarcastic. Um, That was, like... I think my favorite line in this whole section was uh, when Mary asks, is dark matter conscious? And it just responds, evidently. (laughs) (laughs) Duh. So, okay. What do you think is talking here? I mean, it self-identifies as the angels. um, And so I just believe that. Yeah, but... the, the angels can't be dust. Mm-hmm. Because we've seen pictures of the, the dust. It just floats down. Mm-hmm. There could be a, co- a like kind of there's not coalescence of the dust. Like made from dust? Yeah. Made from dust and returned I to guess. dust. I don't I really guess. have a problem with it. because It's, it's metaphysical like, mojo that I don't understand, and that's fine. Yeah, there's like the whole thing of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And like, if that has an answer, then, you know. And it's like God is limits. the father and the son. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's just one of those things. The Holy Ghost. I mean, these yeah. books aren't that hand wavy. I just like, I take it as, you know, like world building information that I trust until other information displaces it. Okay, I fully understand that as the most naive person in this conversation, I'm probably saying things that are going to seem really silly and stupid later on, and I don't care. I'm just, like, going through this experience, like, as I'm really experiencing these books in real time. And so, like, right now, I'm kind of taking it at face value. Okay. Okay. That's actually a good point. Like, the way that I read books or, like, go through stories, I do not try to, like figure out anything necessarily. I'm not trying to like decode uh, plot twists and stuff like that. Even though, you know, like we spend all this time in podcasts, like analyzing things, I try to like meet the story, not with like my expectations and needs for like what the story must do in order to be quote unquote good. Like I try to meet the story with what it's doing and then appreciate what what it is doing on that level that it's on, if that makes sense. And so like, if the story says we're angels and then Mary Malone is like, holy shit, I was a nun. I know what the fuck you're talking about. Like, okay. Like I take that, that them saying that, you know, whatever this is saying, I'm an angel is because that is something that means something to Mary Malone that she can understand and that like gives context to all of this. And like, I accept that as a reader. Okay. I, I, I guess I am coming at it from a, from the point of view of I've gotten to the end of this book and I still don't really feel like I know what dust is or the series because 
I don't, so at the very least, I do think she is talking to whoever is answering questions for Lyra, you know, through the mm-hmm. thingy, the alethiometer. But I just don't know about them being dust. I feel like that. I guess I could go with them being made of dust. But just because we've seen pictures of dust and we know that it's attracted to consciousness and like, why would angels be attracted to consciousness? Because they're dust. There's also like, they could be communicating through the dust, like it's a medium, I guess. And like, you know, it's a telephone line and we're on the other end of the telephone. And it would be like, I'm not going to sit here and explain to you that actually this is a telephone line and this is how it electrons work as they bounce one into another and then you know it's like descript no i'm just an angel on the other end of the phone great but that's not what this conversation is saying this conversation is saying we are dust and dust is consciousness yeah i agree or dust is conscious yeah yeah it's very literally saying dark matter is angels dark matter equals angels Anyways, it's interesting information to get, though, at the very least, about on our, our dust journey. Yeah. Does it make, and like, a- the demons guardian angels on some level? Like, they've been invested with all this angelic presence that they're, like, frozen as some kind of guardian or something? I'm, well, they're not. I mean, con- dust is attracted to consciousness. Do you... So... Kind of what you're saying there is that dust is like inert in some way. Do you feel like it's pushing them at all when it settles on people? The dust? Yeah. So it's hard to get into this without spoilers because here's the thing. I do think we learn that dust is attracted to consciousness, but I also think in a way we learn that dust causes consciousness. Mm -hmm. And Mary says that to Oliver. That this like she even gets confirmation of that in this scene where she says, you know, does our sapience in evolution come from you? And like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which would at the very least mean that they like gave us the dust. But I I guess that plays into I guess you could interpret that to them, like giving us the apple or telling us to eat the apple. Right. Which still doesn't tell you what it is. No, no. Dust is apples. <laughs> we figured it out. There's just a constant rain of apples coming down from the sky. It's real Angelic painful. apples. Newton. Yeah. Newton All really. of them say, eat me on me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we get the hint. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. God. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we just. I feel like this is written in a way to be like, here are answers, but it just causes me more questions. Yeah, I think I had gone the same way as Anya and just like took this information in passively. And I was like, that's what it is. And now that we're like wrestling with it, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't work. And you're right. We didn't really get answers. We got We got the right information to make Mary do the thing that whatever this was. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because if it is the same person who's been answering questions for Lyra, we know it has an agenda. Right. It's even impatient. Like it's answering questions before 
like almost the very moment she's done asking them, right? It's like, get mm-hmm. ask more questions, ask better questions. Come on. Yeah. And actually, so that's part of what I really appreciated about this is I feel like, Kate, your questions have really primed me um, for this. Like, because since book one, you've been mm-hmm. talking about what do you think dust is? Does dust have an agenda? Like, and pointing out all of these things that if I had just been reading through by myself, I'm not sure I necessarily would have noticed, at least on like a really explicit, conscious way. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of why maybe you didn't think this was as important or as exciting as I did was because um, you've been paying attention to all of these little clues all along. And this is the point where it's like, oh, this thing is clearly, yeah, has an agenda. And this is where I start to get suspicious and kind of like almost distrustful of dust in a way that I think you've been all along. Right. Well, I will say that my pointing out all this shit is because I actually think the answers are poorly written and I <laughs> want us to try to figure it out. Okay. Not, but like, we'll get to that later, obviously. Um but even in this conversation, and I should point out, I love this scene. It's great. Like I said, it is literally what got me to read these books. Yeah. I think it's fabulously it's done. Good. But in the scene, like Mary even says, oh, you're rebel angels, implying that there are angels out there that these ones rebelled against that could be also answering questions on the alethiometer mm. or on what's his face's alethiometer, right. who will have their own agenda. Uh, Pavel. Fraud Pavel, is that his name? Whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also like kind of raises the question of the subtle knife seems to work by the same mental mechanism. Mm-hmm. Like Lyra is able to coach Will in how to have the right state of mind. And so there does seem to be some kind of interaction with the same medium to use the subtle knife. And so like are the holes in reality that the subtle knife does you know, interacting with angels or with dust or like, is the world that you get access to decided by whatever agent is behind these messages too? Are they, are they moving Will and Lyra to the places they need to be at the time they need to be there? That we're going to get an answer to. Uh, actually, in a way, I guess they could be. Huh. We can talk about that more next book. Uh, I, I think that's all we had. Science? Science. Science. Um, so talking about science this week, um, there wasn't a lot of like actual science content, but I did think that um, there was some fun stuff in terms of the way that the practice and culture of science was portrayed um, in the chapter with Mary. I really liked it when Dr. Payne said wait a minute, give me some kind of structure here. What are you saying? Are you saying she's confirmed what we already know or she's telling us something new? That just, it struck me as exactly the way that a scientist would try to take all this new information and put a structure on it. I think that's something that people don't appreciate. It's like a skill that scientists need to have um, is kind of narrative storytelling in order to like communicate your findings well. I mean, like, yes, doing the science and like being in the lab is super important. But if you can't turn that science into 
a clear, easy to follow narrative, people aren't going to understand it and people aren't going to use it. And that is actually like a big part of what um, PhD training is, is figuring out how to um, interpret and create your own scientific narratives. And like, and, you know, there's tons of little tricks that you can learn um, in terms of like structures that you can hang your science on um, so that people will be able to understand it better. Uh, I don't know, Francis, if you agree with me or not on that. I'm still in the process of learning this sort of thing, but definitely one of the things that is reinforced is the whole idea of a narrative, the idea of no one cares about science as such. If you give someone some like big science, then rarely are they going to be like, that's awesome. Most of the time they'll be like, so? <laughs> and, which is a perfectly reasonable question. So what? Yeah, you have to provide the right context and then lead them to the meaning. Yeah. Hold right? The like the the meaning is separate almost from the science itself. Yeah. Yeah. It is you you are when you are communicating that, you are taking someone who doesn't necessarily have the background and context and knowledge that you do you're holding their hand through it and saying, okay, so given this piece of information which you didn't have, but which does exist and you could have had, we draw this conclusion. You know, this follows this, follows this, follows this. But you only know that because you've got a bunch, as a scientist, you've got a bunch of extra information in your head that other people don't necessarily have by default. And uh, yeah. some of, you know, some of the obvious conclusions in science, again, particularly in biology, is that's where I'm... I'm focused. You, sometimes something which looks really obvious is actually completely and utterly wrong. And in order to understand why that thing is wrong, you need to have the extra knowledge. And so when you're communicating, it's really just making sure people don't fall down those easy rabbit holes or making sure people just follow things the way which is most sensible. And it, if you don't get it right, then you get some newspapers who have less than moral aims who misinterpret it because you've yeah uh, yeah i mean that that's that's this whole other problem but it's you need to be specific i think what's interesting about what goes on between mary and oliver here in in terms of what you're saying is that Mary does lay it out for Oliver and then his answer is kind of so um, in terms of like he understands the science of it and the significance of it in that context. But given like the culture and his personal career, he's like, this doesn't help me personally. So I'm out. <laughs> right. Go to Geneva. Does that feel authentic to you? Does it like... I mean, Are... there's definitely a lot of, um, I don't know, like angst about where your money is coming from and like furthering your own individual career outside the science. And like this, this section obviously like gets into grant funding um, with the way that Sir Charles is is like dangling the carrot and also threatening the with the stick mm -hmm. um in terms of getting the lab funded or not and so I, yeah i mean i guess the idea that 
a scientist would be like, well, it seems like this current lab that I'm working in is about to go, uh, lose their grant and go bankrupt and not be able to pay me. Like, I need to go find my next paycheck. Like, that's super real. <laughs> yeah. Um, like- even more so now than when this book was written. Like, I think in the mid-90s, like, NSF grant funding rates were, like, in the 30 to 40% range, and now they're down to, like, 10, 15%. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a lot harder to get money, um, and people are a lot desperate. Um, and like in a way that I honestly think kind of encourages scientific misconduct. And there's been um, a few examples of that lately. So if you're a politician who's listening, then fund science. Yeah, please. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. The way that Sir Charles, um, you know, says it helps to know how these committees work in practice and to know who's on them. Um, I think that's actually much less true for like actual government grants, which is what he's implying, at least in the U.S. I don't know that much about how British science works, but in the U.S., I think, um, it's much less about who you know and and less pulling stre- uh, strings behind the scenes like that. And it's more about uh, making your research priorities align with the larger institutional research priorities. It's, it's a, it's a uh, box-ticking exercise, essentially. They have code words, and these code words yeah. change over time. And you are trying to make sure that you are adding in those code words. So let's say that there's a real interest in rabbits. And there's a lot of, you know, right now it has been determined that the scientific focus of the UK should be on rabbits, because rabbits are a real problem right now. If you want to get funding for your research on bees, part of that research grant and part of that proposal is going to have to be and then we evaluate the effect of bee communities on rabbit communities given the current crisis in the UK. You, as a scientist, do not give a fuck about rabbits. Really, <laughs> you don't. You care about the bees, but you need to put it in such a way. And this, this is, this is a, a criticism, really. Uh, you do get this quite a lot and there there isn't much in the way of it's quite hard to get funding for what you'd consider blue skies research it's doable but basically somewhere somewhere in this in that uh chain someone will have said the right words so yeah uh, as uh, as anya says it's not who you know so much really like there's probably a bit of that but not really it's much more what you're saying, but not necessarily what you actually want to do. Yeah, and I think, too, the scientific apparatus has gotten a lot more aware of non-scientific, or how to say this, like, other aspects of the science practice recently. So there's this whole thing called, like, broader impacts now. So unless what you're doing is really a slam dunk incredible, like, top 1% of whatever, like, you not only have to practice good science, but you have to show that you are also, um, like, communicating your science to the public and mentoring scientists from underrepresented backgrounds. And, like, all of that is good, 
like, obviously we need to be working to make science a more just and equitable enterprise. Um, but I think there's a backlash to that from some people who say like, oh, that's not actually important. And then there's also a lot of people who basically just kind of do lip service to those types of broader impacts. Yes. Um, without actually thinking about them or doing them well or really fully investing or believing in them. Um, and so I think there's a lot of people who are not critical of the intent behind broader impacts, but critical of just like how the system is currently operating and that it's essentially like a series of hoops that scientists have to jump through, but it's not actually accomplishing what it's meant to accomplish. Yeah, that's that's uh, kind of the issue is it's, it's particularly the broader impact stuff. It's a halfway house. It's neither actually getting us to a point where, as you say, science is more equitable, science is uh, better better to access for people of all backgrounds um, and of all you know education levels and all of that. It is instead being able to say to the committees who originally identified that these are problems that you're doing it but with the very least uh, effort possible. Or it can yeah. be, I think, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll add that. This isn't necessarily true, and there are many, many people putting in many, many grants who genuinely will do the legwork, to do the education, to do the, you know, to get it right. But it is abusable as a system. The other thing that I was just going to say is that I think because government funding of science has gone down so much over the past couple decades, a lot of like private funding has stepped in um, as like people are trying to fill the gaps, um, which is like a whole nother fucking problem. Um, but also I think a lot of these like private funding apparatuses are easier to manipulate um, behind the scenes just based on who you know because like most of them are funded by rich people like billionaires um and they you know they are not actually trained scientists they might like hire scientists to evaluate their grants before they give them out um but they also just like have a lot more freedom to give money to who they want because it's in the end it's it's like their money and they don't answer to anyone except the billionaires and it can be a boon and a curse there so if you're looking at um individuals who fund science there are a few a select few individuals who really do fund some really good science and there are plenty of corporations particularly who not necessarily don't, but they have a vested interest. Uh, and in fact, this sort of comes back to what Sir Charles is sort of saying when when they're talking to him and Oliver gets the hint that um, Sir Charles is saying, we can give you this money if... And there's, there's a string attached. There's the... Well, you know, we were expecting something in return. We, we, we're, not just, uh, we're not just a charity here we have we want to we want to get something out of this and there are uh partnerships which you can get which can be really good or can be less good where a, a thing is expected you're, you're almost like you're expected to find a thing 
And that's not actually how science works a lot of the time. So people come in with mismatched expectations. People come in with the, with the expectation of treating it like a business transaction. And it's, science isn't and doesn't work like a business transaction, or certainly not the sort of science that um, I'm more involved in. Maybe uh, if you're an engineer, there might be more scope for that. But there's, yeah, there's plenty of places where this is not a, actually a very good way of funding science at all. And maybe funding it from a centralised governmental perspective might be a better idea. But I digress. It's, there's, there's a lot of ethics in there, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And I can't really get too much more in depth into it without naming names in a way that I'm not comfortable doing. Uh, but yeah, this... I really liked this section... Um, it like felt authentic to me as a scientist. And um, I think it like brought up a lot of aspects about the practice of science that obviously you could talk a lot about if you wanted to. Um, but I think we should move on to religion. I can't believe that you think neoliberalism is hurting modern science. It's just, uh, it's just crazy. <laughs> oh yeah. Wait, no, there was one other thing I wanted to ask Francis, which is, okay. So I know a lot about science. I don't know a lot about British aristocracy when who is it? someone in the book, like says something like, Oh, did Oliver say Sir Charles? Like do knights just run around swinging their dick trying to get shit done in england all the time is that like a thing if someone showed up with a sir would you would people be like in awe of that or or would they just be like fuck off if someone turned up with a title like sir or lord and was asking to see you you would probably see them it would be very unusual for you not to give them the time of day partially because if anyone turned up to see me i'd probably see them and see what they wanted but <clears throat> more generally like that they you don't i was gonna say you you don't get sir in front of your name by doing nothing but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do good things to get sir in front of your name but that's another that's another discussion what i will draw a parallel to is uh something known as the black spider memos which are letters and memos written by uh prince charles to government ministers and politicians and this is similar, though not a scientific version. This is a, a similar sort of thing where you you see um, exertion of hierarchical power throughout something which should be devoid of that. So in this case, mm. uh, he was he sent a bunch a bunch of letters in a private capacity to governmental ministers, expressing views about things like farming and uh, GM global warming. And not all of those letters and not all of those opinions were necessarily based in reason or science. <laughs> um, uh, Prince Charles, I believe, though, please, uh, I I can't say this one for certain. This is coming from just from my um, my my mind, but I believe he's a or certainly was an advocate of homeopathy and oh, good. things oh, like that. Great and um, wrote to uh, people who were in charge of health things to say, maybe we should consider homeopathy for this, which <laughs> is, pro you wow. can see it being problematic. 
<laughs> homeopathy, by the way, for because I think not everyone knows this. Homeopathy is not just natural medicine. Like there are there's a lot of debate over like non-traditional herbal medicines, whatever. Like homeopathy is not that. Homeopathy was one crazy British guy and or not British German guy in the 19th century came up with a system that is like provably false. Um, it's that, you drink water. You have water that more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. All those all those like LaCroix jokes about like a can of soda that sat next to a strawberry, that's homeopathy, literally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um it's anyway. Oh, okay. God. Just pointing yeah. that out. If you want to learn more, you can Google that, but it's complete <laughs> bullshit. Yeah, there's there's some there's some real yeah, he is a patron of a homeop homeopathic uh group. Uh, yes. So this but sort he's of very thing, rich. Oh, he's so like, literally a prince. That's better than being an expert or having <laughs> knowledge, isn't it? Yep. Pretty much. Pretty much that. So yeah. Um, these things aren't unheard of. Possibly not quite to the same degree. But also, again, if someone called Sir Something turned up and asked to speak to me about my work. I'd give them the time of day because it's, again, it's a title which is given for something, even if it's not necessarily something that is useful. I'd probably look them up first and be like, well, if they're, you know, if they were given sir because they made some really cool contributions to science then yeah, let's talk. If not, then yeah, let's talk. <laughs> At the very least, you might get a good story out of it. Yeah. I might buy my drink. <laughs> yeah. Well, if he's in the House of Lords, that would matter. I, he's not you know, for funding and stuff. He's not in the House of Lords. Well, um, yeah, actually, yeah. Actually, no, yeah, if he was Sir, he wouldn't be in the House of Lords because I think Lord takes precedent over Sir. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so Lord and Sir are different. Yes. I don't even know these things. Yes. What is So Lord is hereditary no. and Sir means you've actually earned it. No. Lord is wow. not, Lord is no. not necessarily <laughs> sir. Okay. Lord is not necessarily <laughs> higher, um, hereditary, but there are some hereditary. We lords. can discuss this later. Yes. Um, short, short. Can, can we just have another podcast that's like Francis explains British things to Anya? <laughs> I'll just link you a YouTube video and be done with it. Oh, okay, fine. But yeah, it's it, it. You get to the point where in the upper house you actually have um, a, a full title along the lines of the Right Honourable, the Lord Spiritual and Temporal in Parliament assembled. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that guy wants to talk to you, and you're like, absolutely, I have time for you. Yes, I mean that that is actually an abbreviation <laughs> for the House of Lords, but the point kind of stands. That there, there's a lot of this sort of thing. Um, in the stranger parts of old school English. Onwards to religion. Something less controversial. I actually just wanted to point out one small thing in this scene. <laughs> We're that... trying so hard to leave science and it's just not going to happen. Well, uh, this is, is more of a character thing about Oliver. <laughs> um, just that I really liked the bit at the end where Mary is like, you're not doing this. They want to control our work. And he's like, well, if we don't, they'll just get somebody else, which I think makes Oliver quite possibly the most evil person in that chapter. Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. He's a giant that's, dick bag. Yeah. Bag like, that's for some sure. bullshit right there. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And when 
when Mary brings up again the fact that, like, uh, Sir Charles used the phrase manipulation of consciousness and Oliver's just like, yeah. whatever. Like, that's mm-hmm. so fucked up. I mean, we already went pretty deep about scientific ethics um, when we were at Bullwinger. Don't try and find out if people look gay. It's not going to help anyone. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, there's, yeah, that's some research that's being done right now. Wait, what? If you can, like, tell people's sexual orientation from, like, machine learning their face? Yes. Ugh. Ugh. Fuck no. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, bioethics. We could have another podcast about bioethics. <laughs> I saw that same thing there. One <laughs> sorry. It was, uh, it's, it's exactly the same thing that I've been talking about with all this Nietzsche stuff. Is, is what I saw there with Marion Oliver is that Oliver is institutionalized and is, has like the slave morality of like, I will do what the institution needs because that is what is good for me and for everyone, but especially me, you know, because to fit into the machine is good. And then Mary is like her own person, right? That's what part of why we respect her. She has integrity in the face of all this pressure, she says no. And then she goes against the institution and destroys the equipment and like ends any hope that they have of continuing the experiment, you know, without having to just totally rebuild all the equipment. Right. So that's like very Nietzschean. She's in, you know, she's using her will to like, you know, she is, you know, dominating the situation with like her decisions. She's making the mm-hmm. decisions for everybody, not the institution making decisions for her. Mm. Yeah. And I love what this chapter does for Mary's competence, right? Because the angels or the dust or whatever, the words on the screen, they don't tell her in detail what to do. They tell her like her medium end goal, right? For what she needs to accomplish. But she knows like exactly what all of the weakest points are in the machine and just like goes about it with a terrifying precision um, <laughs> in the way that she like destroys all of all of the equipment um, and then gets a fake ID put together um, to deceive the guardian. Um, yeah, all of it is great. And like is so willing to go mm-hmm. like give up your whole life, go into this tent and she brings like camping gear with her. Yeah, she's like, she, I hiked just through Switzerland, in, it's fine. But like, if somebody told me to go into a tent in the middle of Oxford, I wouldn't be like, I might need my camping gear, you know? But <laughs> she they, understands that she's going on a journey. <laughs> I think I did tell her to bring supplies, but I guess that's oh, okay, kind of okay. it. Okay, but still, like, you wouldn't think there's a window to another world that I'm going to have to be hiking through in this yeah. tent. Yeah, and I do love that she's been, like, very skeptical and questioning of her sanity this whole time. Yeah. Um, Because I think that makes her decision to go through with it feel more real or more realistic and like it's an actual decision, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She could have turned back at any point and she chose to go forward. And we know because of her backstory that she's capable of this because she was a nun. Like, she was literally a nun. And then she was like, dump this. I'm a scientist. And Ooh, I'm, yeah, I didn't and, even think about atheist. that. Yeah. 
That's and really so good. she's she's done that again now. And, you know, it's not that might be too big of a leap for somebody. But when you know this about Mary to begin with, you're like, OK, I, I can believe that. So, yeah, I think all that stuff is great. And it underlines all of the, you know, themes that have been happening up until this point all over again. And I'm very interested in the angels calling Mary the serpent. Like, that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. Okay. That's our segue finally into the yeah. religion section. Let's <laughs> yeah. talk about snakes. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about Mary as the serpent uh, in the story because it's like, uh, I didn't mention this. I almost did uh, when we had the chapter before with Lee and he gets into the fight with the magisterium guy and uh, takes his ring before he does that. And I always notice this in fiction. Um, but I think it's something that kind of flies past people because you really need to be familiar with whatever, um, Bible verses are being used. The guy misquotes, uh, the Bible. Well, I see, I hesitate to call it a misquotation because I'm sure that the Bible is different in Lyra's world than it is in our world. Uh, and we've already seen that actually, uh, when Lord Asriel is reading uh, from the book of Genesis, there were t- tiny differences um, that had to do with like Adam and Eve's demons and stuff like that. But the point here is that the guy quotes uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 15, uh, when he says, you will know them by their fruits. And then he says, by the serpent gnawing at their hearts with questions which is not in the Bible that we have. Um, And that verse is all about how you will be able to recognize who the real Christians are and who are just paying lip service to Christianity as like an institution. Um, Jesus is giving advice to his followers about the future of Christianity. And he's basically saying, pay attention to what people do and not to what people say. Uh, Don't pay attention to appearances, you know, what the tree looks like. Pay attention to the fruit of the tree or the, you know, the outcomes of their actions. Yeah, it's things like that that make me think in a way Christianity is not so bad. But man, people have fucking twisted it into some shit. Jesus was a cool guy. But yeah, his fans. Whoa, there's problems in that fandom. (laughs) It's um. So it's interesting to me that like he's that that is part of that verse, because what it says, the serpent gnawing at their heart with questions is literally in, in that version of the Bible, Jesus saying that to be curious and to question things and to, you know, seek out to, you know, to annihilate your innocence and to seek knowledge is a sign of evil. It's heretical. It's non-Christian in character. You know, that's not a part of our Bible. I I like that because it really implies, or it doesn't even imply it straight out. It says that the magisterium in Lyra's world, like, put that in there. Yeah, maybe, right? Well, you say maybe as if maybe God did write the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes, they did. Like, somebody must have put that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And been like, actually, we want to control people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just mean the, I guess, the divergences in, in historical context that maybe it was there from the beginning. But yes, you have a point that maybe God did not write have, the Bible, in I, fact. I have my doubt that 
if in Lyra's world, the Bible was allegedly written by the same people that it was written by in our world, I highly doubt Jesus and his 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 dudes were writing about don't be curious. Right. You know, like the Magisterium put that in. The famous band, Jesus and his dudes. Jesus and his dudes. <laughs> it's another name for them. So like, you know, these... And of course, the serpent is the Eden thing, right? This is the serpent that tempts Eve into eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, we have fruit there, right? You'll know them by their fruit. This is the fruit of knowledge. This is what ruined Eden and presumably ruined the world and and ruined humanity. This is what makes your demon locked into its, you know, final form and has something to do with dust. Like this is... This is the crossroads of all this. And Mary stands at that crossroads, according to this angel that she's talking to, that you are the serpent. So she is important in that she is like a agent of curiosity, of like inquiry and knowledge, and that she uh, has a role to play in bringing someone across the Rubicon of innocence into like awareness or consciousness. Oh my God. I wonder who. Yeah. Probably <laughs> couldn't guess at all. I think Ruta Scotty would say Lord Asriel. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Which is funny because Lord Asriel has been set up as our kind of satanic character, which we've talked about. And of course, the serpent is Satan in Christianity. Um, but that's not the role that Asriel seems to play. It It comes down to this scientist, which I, I think is fascinating. I was going to ask about this. I love this bit because it's just more in how Asriel doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. And that the serpent is also a woman is really fascinating, I think. Because this is like a very masculine ar- archetype uh in, in the serpent, there's like sexuality associated with it. There's seduction of Eve and stuff like that. And so like to have this be a woman who is the source of knowledge and curiosity, I really love that. And seducing another woman, question mark? <clears throat> I mean, I don't, I'm, that is not. The metaphor uh, where kind my, of falls apart there. That's not but. where my brain went, but like a different kind of seduction, <laughs> maybe in terms of like learn things. Like don't, yeah. don't, you know, break out of institutions and things like that. So speaking of Azriel, we have more information about him via Ruta, about this big army that he's gathering To me, this is very obviously like alluding to the book of Revelation, um, especially stuff about the Antichrist that's in uh, chapter 17. Uh, It's pretty much all of chapter 17, where the Antichrist is like extended his influence um, over the people of the earth to the degree that all of the world leaders are following the Antichrist. And his mission is to literally gather an army and battle God and um, and his angels and the hosts of heaven. And they're going to gather in this place that's near like a mountain. And uh, and they're going to be this the biggest army ever assembled in human history. And they're going to challenge God like that's the plan. And this is like exactly Azrael's plan. 
is gather this huge army. He's on, you know, he went through this mountain top portal and now he's at his secret lair fortress thing, assembling all kinds of monsters from across the universe and doing weird shit. And it's very, very antichrist in its uh, entire setup. I like Ezreal as the Antichrist more than as Satan himself. Well, in the in the story of Revelation, the Antichrist is also kind of like a nothing when it comes down to it, because he's kind of like a stooge for Satan to like, you know, pay attention to this guy over here, God, while I'm doing this other stuff. And like, he seems like a big problem and he's certainly a big problem for the people of Earth, like while it's happening like the people who are still, you know, experiencing all the terrible things that are happening as the world ends. Um, and he seems like the best hope as like everything is falling apart. You kind of like go to him to, for stability. But, um, you know, he doesn't actually matter in terms of uh, the future history that Revelations chronicles. And Satan is like where it's at in terms of the power behind the Antichrist. That's the title of this podcast? Uh, Satan, <laughs> is, where Satan is where it's at. Satan is where it's at. Our new motto. <laughs> right, be- <laughs> right behind uh, the Antichrist and all of his uh, hosts battling God is um, Revelation 19. Spoilers for the Bible. Uh, the Antichrist loses... And God wins. Who could have predicted this? Um, the creator of the universe easily kills the um, human hosts who gather to, like, there's literally not a finger lifted. Um, Jesus just says some words and they all die. And so uh, what happens after that is an angel comes out and, and like, commands all of the birds of the earth to go to that place where the largest army ever assembled is and to eat them uh, after they have died. And this sounds a whole hell of a lot like what the cliff gasps are saying to each other about like, I cannot wait for this battle. This guy does not know that he is fucked, but boy, are we going to eat? It's going to be better than ever. And so that was like right out of revelations for me, like another very clear allusion, I think to uh, that part of scripture. And, and what we're pointing at here is like a confrontation between uh, humankind and the creator of the universe. That's what Revelation's all about. Which will lead to a <clears throat> finger so buffet not, with real fingers. With real fingers. <laughs> real beaks. <laughs> it's like that scene in The Dark Crystal oh, where God. they just like <laughs> have a big feast of gross food. They... um. Yeah, so it's not pointing backwards the way that I think it was before at like Paradise Lost and the story of Satan trying to supplant God. This is pointing the other direction to the book of Revelation. And what we've already been told is that this is kind of cyclical. And so that perhaps the book of Revelation itself is like, precedes the book of Genesis in a way that the whole thing is circular, um, that there, that Armageddon and the recreation of the universe and earth 
in heaven is actually just the recapitulation of the world. That there needs to be another serpent in Mary implies this entire like Garden of Eden thing is going to repeat or something. But we're also pointing towards the book of Revelation. And so it implies a circularity to the timeline that um, doesn't exist in Christianity, but is present in this story. Well, that they do say a lot in these chapters about how this has all happened before. Right. Yeah. That's really important because remember way back in book one, when I talked about um, that Protestantism is, uh, it has this whole thing about how there cannot be contingent futures. There's only one future because if it, if it is the case that you could have chosen to be a Christian or not chosen to be a Christian, that means that your choice has supremacy over God. And so time needs to be linear. The future needs to be completely determined for that kind of Christianity to operate. If time is circular, then there is still kind of a, a fate to it, that it, there's still a determinism to it because the entire cycle needs to repeat itself again. But your choices would actually matter a whole lot more than what the magisterium is comfortable with. And so it kind of dismantles that, um, that whole kind of Christian determinism that revolves around original sin and your choices and, you know, who is important. Like it, it puts the locus of power in human choice and not in uh, God's hands. And that like fundamentally changes the character of like what fate is and how it operates, even though it's a cycle of history um, instead of being linear. So I think it super matters that he keeps saying that like these things have happened and they will happen again. And that we're pointing at revelation on the one hand and the garden of Eden simultaneously and in the same direction. All right. Angels is the last thing and probably the biggest thing to talk about. Like why the hell haven't you mentioned angels uh, in the religion section? Okay. I think it's, <laughs> Interesting, again, that we get quotes from St. Augustine, the way that we're quoting the Bible in different parts, and the way that things are misquoted is like points at something important, I think. Um, so the part that we get quoted here of St. Augustine is actually from the Catholic Catechism. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, but like the Catechism, I was surprised when I found out about this, but I wasn't raised Catholic either. Um, but the catechism is like a modern document uh, that comes out of like the 1980s. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah. It's like a fairly recent. It's, a, it's literally a modern thing that is I meant to no like, idea what the catechism is. Okay. <laughs> so the catechism is meant to kind of iron out canonical uh, rules of like the metaphysics of Christianity or Catholic. So is that like a JP two thing? Yeah, exactly. What that is, is John okay. Paul the second. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that you were making a metaphor and I was like, what's JP two JP two John Paul the second. 
Okay. Not the first okay. jet propulsion. Remember yes. when we had one pope for like decades instead of getting a new one every few years? Yep. And it nope. was that guy. And he was very important in in the politics that he was involved in. And the catechism was a very important part of that um, in, in kind of like aligning the Catholic Church internally in terms of its teaching. Um, and so this part of the catechism has to do specifically with angels and with their nature and it's just, you know, he just straight up quotes, uh, or Mary in her head knows that like, oh, what is an angel? Uh, you know, it is, you know, is and and what he's doing there is this like. This is the part about spirit and matter. Right. And like and, what, what they pertain to and what they are made of. Yeah, they are, they are not, their nature is not angels. That's like what they do, right? They're, uh, angel is a verb, kind of. <laughs> kind of. It's a job. Yeah. Angel is what you do. Yeah, it's a job. Um, it's their vocation. Well, really what it is, is that St. Augustine has just recently, when he's writing this, uh, obtained for the first time in European history, like um, Aristotle. So we had the Crusades that went into uh, from Europe into Jerusalem. And all of like... Uh, Greek philosophy had been lost to Europe for the most part, uh, to Western Europe. And when they went into the Middle East and they fought against people there, they also, there was like, you know, cultural intercourse and, and people were like trading and learning about each other while they were at war with each other, which happens all the time. What they discovered was that, you know, all of these Muslims had like Plato and Aristotle and, you know, all of the Greek philosophers and they had their own traditions set up around it and, you know, had like figured out algebra and stuff like that based on Pythagoras and, you know, had like evolved all of Greek culture along their own cultural lines. And so they took things written in Arabic, you know, like translations, uh, of Aristotle and stuff like that, and then translated them into Latin. And this is what St. Augustine is reading is Aristotle. And so he's learning for the first time about teleology. And that's why. Wow. It's, yeah. It's been a minute. <laughs> that's why he's like, this is what their telos is angel. That's not what they are. Right. Your your job is being, uh, you know, a pope or a bartender or a smith or a wheelwright. That is not what you are. That is your vocation. That is your telos in the hierarchy of society and in the hierarchy of the universe and in the great chain of being. Angels are what they do and what they are made of the way that we are made of flesh is they are made of spirit. So that is like what they are is spirit and what they do is angel. But the angel doesn't say that when it talks to Mary. It, it like disconfirms what St. Augustine is saying. It contradicts it. What does he say? What we are, spirit. What we do, matter. Matter and spirit are one. And like that is enormously heretical thing to say 
uh, in terms of like Christianity that like angels are like interfering with the material universe and that they are interested in like the marriage of spirit and matter. Like that is a bad thing in Christianity. The fact that our souls are trapped in bodies that are under the curse of original sin is the entire problem with the universe. We're stuck in original sin and in bodies that are perverted. And the angel is saying, this is the whole point of the universe. This is like our vocation is you in bodies and being aware of yourselves. That is like what the point is of everything, which is, like I said, that's huge. That's, that is like the magisterium going after Azrael, right? This is like, how it all started. Dust is settling on adults and we need to get down to the bottom of it. And the magisterium is like, absolutely not. Because this is, that's the whole problem is that is saying that this is a good thing to be self-aware and embodied simultaneously is a good thing. That's what this angel is saying. And the magisterium is like, absolutely not cut it in half, cut it off while they're children. So that misquote is huge. I really like that considering where the story goes. We are going to come back to this. I was, that was probably the most exciting part of the whole Ouija board computer thing for me was misquoting St. Augustine. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) he's saying that it's good to be a person. Can you believe that? That doesn't sound like an angel speaking. No. It's almost like it's the whole theme of these books. Nah, nah. No, 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 what? no. <laughs> there is a, a little thing I wanted to add to the idea of angels, which is uh, there are other interpretations of angels aside from St. Augustine's approach. Uh, what? Heresy. <laughs> I mean, in this case, quite literally, it's... Uh, <laughs> Um, the example I have here is uh, from the Jewish Kabbalah, and if I mispronounce that, then my bad. Um, but that looks at angels as an extension of the power of God towards performing a task. So imagine it like a God tendril, which comes down, strokes the earth briefly, and then disappears. And that's the important thing, is that the angel when the, is created when the task is set, and once the task is complete, the angel is gone. It is ex- as an extension of the power to the task, and then that extension is not necessary once the task is complete. Now, this doesn't really align with the interpretation as Pullman sets out. However, there, there are there are some some interesting parallels to also or to con- continue to consider going forward is this idea that the again they are defined by their telos they're defined by what they're there to do and once they're done with that then there's no point in them uh because if we right. if we don't exist exactly and if we're, we're yeah. as we were trying to talk about earlier what are angels are they a co- coalescence of dust well that are they a coalescence of dust only to the point you know why does dust coalesce in this in this manner to do something and once it's done back to dust with you so mm-hmm, just go, mm-hmm. going forward, it's, uh, it's something to keep in mind. 
as an alternative, maybe not an alternative interpretation, but as a parallel interpretation rather than just the purely um, classic Catholic Christian one. If the angels had been written more in that way, I'd be more okay with them being dust. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agreed. I think it's a nicer interpretation. That's kind of almost like a field theory or something, like a particle field theory of like, you know, they arise out of a kind of field that they exist in when disturbed correctly. You know, like electrons don't really exist, but they exist insofar as like when we bump them, they go along the circuit board in a predictable way, you know, because that's what we make them do. That's actually like... Now that you're saying that, that's like kind of what all of alchemy and a lot of like occultism of the 1600s and stuff had to do with like summoning angels and trapping them and stuff like that. You're not like, it's not even necessarily about a particular personality even. It's just like knowing the rules to manipulate the angel verse yeah. <laughs> kind of. In in a manner, <laughs> this, this approach... Um, and again, it's also related to things like Gnosticism and uh, that side of the more yeah. mythical side of the Abrahamic religions. Mystical, yeah. Yeah, sorry, that's, yes. Um, they're an emergent property of the space right. that they're in. Yes. They come out because of stuff, but they are not, they are a transitional state rather than necessarily being as a thing. They don't exist on their own. That's kind of what Aristotle was saying with his whole, like, that's what St. Augustine is doing when he's using Aristotle. Aristotle had four causes for the being of everything and, um, like, what it's made of, what it looks like, like, in its ideal form, and what its uh, purpose is, and uh, how it was made, right? And those are the four causes of everything. And if you're missing one of those four things, either you have a defective whatever that is, like a table made out of jello uh, is not a good table, right? Because it's not made out of a correct material. Uh, or you just don't have whatever the thing is. So if a tree falls in the woods and there's nobody to hear the sound, that's a bad sound because it teleologically did not uh, do its job of going into somebody's ear. And so the sound does not fully exist. It only potentially exists. Uh, and in the same way, the angel does not exist unless it has a purpose to fulfill. Go back tree. Try again. Be louder. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah, be louder. If you could just wait for that hiker, it'd be great. <laughs> that is the end of religion. Yay. Forever. <laughs> I guess we don't need to finish the book then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ta da. I mean, uh, it's. I guess Philip Pullman couldn't write the angels the way that we were just talking about, though. No. No, I agree. Yeah. I don't think it would be a good narrative idea to do that in terms of you need characters um, unless yeah, the angels do. are like a magic system unto themselves or something. Right. Well, I'm, I'm also just thinking about his general sort of world state, mm -hmm. his world building. It, it would be interesting, but would cause problems. Oh, yes. 
I thought it was interesting that Ruta mentioned that Will was the same kind as Asriel, especially in light of your new information that what Asriel's working on has fuck all to do with the actual resolution of the series. Um, but also, like, I don't like Ruta or trust anything about her, so maybe we can just ignore that. Well, I think that was in the same bit what I think that I wanted to talk about, where both Serafina and Ruta... I don't know if they actually say that they're frightened of Will, but they do say that this, like, this young kid, like, they don't like meeting him in the eye. Like, they don't like looking in the yeah. He's frightening to them. And I think that does say something really interesting about Will and the type of person he is. It just and occurred to me that maybe Ruta meant that she wanted to mash dangly bits with will and that is super inappropriate and i am immediately running away from that conclusion no 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 i'm pretty sure she meant that she thinks he's the same type of person like an intense can always get what he wants or like not knows how to get what he wants i suppose let's say that he has the internal drive to transcend yeah i I found the uh quote he's strange said rutascardi he is the same kind as Lord Asriel. Have you looked into his eyes? To tell the truth, said Serafina Pekela, I haven't dared. So she's scared. Yeah. Yeah. All concerned. And I, I guess you could say that maybe that has something to do with him being the bearer of this knife mm-hmm. that can literally cut through anything, including worlds. But I feel like they probably would have had the same reaction had he not gotten the knife. Yeah. Or even, like, before he'd gotten the knife. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's, like, outside of their whole prophecy system, too. Like, he's unaccounted for in a way that is probably disturbing to them. Which is interesting, because they have they have this knowledge about Lyra, and it seems like Lyra's story is now wound up with Will's, but they have no knowledge of Will. Right. Which would be very disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, I can see why they're freaked out about that. And also, speaking of the witches trying to make sense of things, I think it's interesting that um, the witches think Lyra might be the weapon that I'm not going to try to say. Francis can say it if he wants. Oh, it's fine. Um, This is fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's Um, a me as a (laughs) hetero. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and they, <laughs> to support this idea, they say, uh, why else would Mrs. Coulter be so anxious to find her? Um, and I guess, I don't know, as someone who doesn't know book three, I lean more towards it being the knife than Lyra. Um, but it's cool that the, I do like that Pullman is like presenting it as kind of an open question that everyone in the book is trying to figure out. I I enjoy this idea that these two women couldn't possibly comprehend that a mother is anxious to find her daughter. (laughs) 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 Well, maybe they've just like, they know Miss Colt, Mrs. Coulter well enough to not think that she has any maternal instinct in her body. Very fair. I just like she 
I get Mrs. Coulter is an evil bitch and I love her, but she has also shown that she does care about Lyra. Yeah. Like she yeah. stopped her from getting severed. She she wanted to be with her when as soon as Azrael was out of the picture. You, you know, like Do they know that? Maybe care isn't the word, but I I think Lyra's told her whole life story to Serafina. Like in the first book, she would tell her whole life story to anybody who would listen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I just think it's funny that they, they were like, maybe Mrs. Coulter just wants her fucking daughter actually. Nah, couldn't be that. (laughs) There's literally this interworld war brewing and (laughs) maybe somebody just wants to be like, I think she's in the middle of it. Could could we maybe get her out? Like, <laughs> for all her evil faults, I don't think Mrs. Coulter, Coulter wants Lyra to be a dead daughter. That was a weird way to phrase that. <laughs> I'm sorry, Lyra. I just don't think you should be a dead. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, the last other thing that I wanted to talk about, um, just because when we were reading The Golden Compass, we talked quite a bit about uh, the contrast between adults and kids and how Lyra um, relates to adults and kids and um, how she, in that first book, she like really lost her her faith in adults um, and her trust in them as a group. Um, and then after her experience with the mob in the last chapter, um, in chapter 13, this week she said, well, I won't trust kids again. I thought back at Bullvanger that whatever grownups did, however bad it was, kids were different. They wouldn't do cruel things like that, but I ain't sure now. And I, I just think that's uh, kind of important to track and uh, think about moving forward as Will and Lyra are kind of like going through this transition from kids more to adults it really like i like this bit because it it does sort of show lyra growing up and realizing that you know people are people doesn't matter Mm -hmm. how old they are but it really fucking sucks that a part of growing up is realizing you just can't trust anyone yeah Mm -hmm. she's first she can't trust adults now she can't trust kids like yeah what's a young protagonist to do yeah (laughs) wonderful wonderful Luckily, there are angels. You can trust them. Great. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This is like, you know, these kids are, they're just a few bad apples. I don't think she should judge all kids based on them. You know, It few- literally just struck me that I had this, the exact same realization when I was 11. Oh, people are the worst. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> like... Like some people, whenever somebody says, you know, what's the worst time of year? I was like 11 when I was 11. That was the worst. I will never. Uh, it was the worst fucking year of my life. Defund people. So. Yeah. Defund people. <laughs> Defund children. <laughs> I think that that is uh, hilarious. I mean, hers is a little bit more intense than mine. Nobody tried to kill me with a gun. That you know of. But um, that I'm, sure, I guess that you can talk about. Nobody can Nobody physically case. ran after me, yelling that they hoped I would die and live, or that they wanted to murder me. <laughs> <laughs> but still, it sucks when you realize that everybody sucks. Yep. Well, not yeah. everybody sucks. I think some people here are know. rather nice. Uh, no. Uh, 
that's mm. I mean, like that there isn't a group of people that you can be sure is OK, you know, only if you define it as the group yeah. of people who are OK. But I feel that like <laughs> I might be missing the point there. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. You have to change your default. Yes. Everybody sucks until proven otherwise. It's interesting to me that Lyra became disenchanted with adults before she became disenchanted with children, because I feel like with me, it was definitely the other way around. I feel like I was disenchanted with other children much, much earlier, and it wasn't until probably I got my first like adult job out of college that I was like, oh, man, people in their 20s and 30s are also just like super fucked up. Like no one's gotten more mature or learned anything. I don't know, because you go through your whole childhood being told not to trust strange adults. You know, like, you don't go anywhere with strangers, don't blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't think I ever at a time thought, yes, I can trust adults. <laughs> like, the ones that I didn't know. I knew I could, Yeah, you know, I knew the ones that I could trust, but I never thought, as a whole, adults good. Yeah, I guess maybe I didn't think that either, but there's like a specific type of disillusionment and betrayal that comes from like trusting someone and then finding out that that trust was ill-placed. And that's different than like your parents telling you not to take candy from strangers. Yeah, I guess. I The only disillusionment I remember having with adults when I became one was like the, the common, oh, they don't have their shit together either. Great. I was really <laughs> looking forward to that. Yeah. Like when you when am I going to shift gears and understand yeah. how to be who I am? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't happen. I found that the opposite is spoilers. <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> You're not allowed to spoil not, later life, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually found it quite um quite encouraging when I realized that no one's got it together. Because people still like appear like right. everything's okay, and you're like, well, that's at least what I'm aspiring to. That we're all kind of in it together. No one, no one's okay, and thus just redefine okay to be average. It's fine. Yeah, everyone's special. Everyone's sad. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I meant was like there was no. I was sad that there was no point that I was gonna reach where I had it together, you know, like it just wasn't going to happen. And I was like, I guess it's good to know that about myself, but <laughs> yeah. Well, on that cheerful note, are we done for today? I believe we are. Okay. Uh, well, next time we'll be talking about chapters 14 and 15, the final two chapters in the subtle knife. Woohoo. If you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. -E I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, you can send your emails to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And remember, Satan is where it's at.
Okay, segue. Figuring out a segue. There we are, that'll do it. <laughs> Yo. That might be the cleanest intro we've ever done. It was pretty good. At least in a while. Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> in chapter 13, and I'm going to take a second to try and pronounce this at least consistently. Isita? Isita. We'll go with that. In chapter 13. I, I do think you're cutting out uh, a syllable or something because there's four syllables. Isaita. But there's, it's because. Oh, I like that one. Uh, is all basically all merged into one if you're trying to pronounce it, I feel. Because I mean, yeah, oh, I could go. Uh, gotcha, 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 gotcha. I could do that. What do we think? That, that's how they do it in the book, mm -hmm. but really just. I, I was just being a little obnoxious, so oh, I love it. do as you will, really. Okay. I think okay. this should go at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and now for 10 minutes of Francis trying to pronounce a word made up in Latin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And Caitlin being a shit. That's the problem with it. It's like a made up. It's like a not. And it's not even like a Rowling-esque made up word that you can like figure out leviosa leviosa you know it's like as a why are there continents consonants mashed together and vowels what the fuck is this word <laughs> i hope you like latin digraphs because we've got loads of them yeah in chapter 13 isaita fucking hell try again <laughs> in chapter 13 <laughs> Three, two, one, breathe. <laughs>